You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Well, good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this auditorium this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Hannah Beth said just a moment ago, we're glad that you're here. If you're new, we'd love to connect with you. Um, invite you out to coffee to tell you more about what we're seeking to accomplish in this part of the city of Atlanta and, and beyond. God's definitely at work here, and we're super excited about what he's doing. Um, if you're coming in and, and you are new this morning, um, just to kind of give you a heads up of, of where we are uh, this morning as you dive in with us. Uh, back in the spring, we began a series entitled A Beautiful Mess, and that was part one, essentially. We took a look at the first six chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians together as a church. You can actually go back and listen to those podcasts online to play catch up a little bit, although you don't have to necessarily. I'm going to do my best to try to connect the dots to where we've come from um, so that you can dive in with us and be a part of the sequel without having seen the first movie, so to speak. And so last week we jumped into part two of this series uh, entitled A Beautiful Mess, where we'll be working through for the remainder of the fall through chapter seven through the remainder of the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the reason that we, we broke things up like that was because if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see the apostle Paul um, draw a line in the sand, so to speak, after the first six chapters where he's been addressing hearsay coming out of the church in Corinth, he begins to address things that have actually been written to him uh, by people in the church in Corinth beginning in chapter 7. So there's a bit of correspondence taking place. Paul's engaging in Q&A with the church in Corinth. And so we're diving into this Q&A with this church and taking a look at how that connects to where we are um, as Christians in the 21st century. And so last week, we jumped into the first part of chapter 7 where uh, we essentially took a look at some very weighty subject matters. We, we talked about marriage and divorce and sex and singleness, and we didn't remotely cover everything that there is to say about those topics. Had we done so, we would have never left. You'd still be sitting here from last Sunday. And so it wasn't a treatise on those topics, but rather an engagement of what Paul was addressing last week. But if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. If you have questions about marriage or divorce or singleness or sex or celibacy, any of those things, I think you'll find that to be a really helpful message to engage. But this week we pick up on the back half of chapter 7. Last week we talked about things like um, what sex and intimacy should look like in a marriage. We talked about questions having to do with uh, when can you divorce? Is divorce okay ever? What does that look like? What does it look like for widows and widowers moving forward in their lives? What does it look like when a uh, a Christian is married to a non-Christian. What are you supposed to do in those situations? And so we took a look, a look at a lot of case studies last week, and we're going to engage another one of those this week. Um, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be in verses 17 through 40 this morning. I'm not going to read the entire passage up front for the sake of time. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under one of the seats uh, in the row in front of you. There's a basket under each of those seats. You should see a Bible somewhere nearby, and you can flip open to this morning's passage using one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that. That's the church's gift to you for free. Um, we believe in the value of the scriptures, and we want you to own a copy. So please take that if you don't have a copy. Let me just pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll, we'll get straight to work. God, thank you for what you're doing um, in this church and through this church and this community. Uh, we love your word. We love the scriptures. We submit ourselves to the scriptures as the ultimate authority. We come to you this morning opening the scriptures, and we pray that you would uh, help us to see uh, the things that our eyes deeply need to see. Help us to hear the things that our ears deeply need to hear. Help our hearts to receive the things that uh, they deeply need to receive for the sake of our own joy and for the sake of your glory this morning. Um, would you do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, this morning and awaken us, uh, awaken our souls to the beauty and wonder of, of who you are, God. We lift these things up in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so as I said last week, uh, we jumped into the first 16 verses. And, and as we dive into the rest of this chapter, there's 
we got to get a little bit nerdy this morning. And so um, I want to unpack something very briefly before we dive into the text this morning. Um, You'll find different biblical authors at certain times using this literary technique known as the sandwich technique. Uh, Mark uses this in his gospel account on a number of occasions. An example would be uh, when uh, he tells the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And and he begins that story, and then all of a sudden he he sidetracks, and he starts talking about this woman with a a blood hemorrhage issue. And then he comes back around to the story of Jairus' child being raised from the dead. And, And Throughout the course of that particular story, you could read that and assume that Mark has an ADD problem, that he's, he's beginning one story, and then all of a sudden somebody says, oh, look, a squirrel. And then Mark just kind of sidetracks and tells this other story and then finally goes, oh, back to the original. I, I forgot where I was going there. But that's not remotely what he's doing. That uh, Most scholars would argue that he's using a literary technique to make a theological point. And the Apostle Paul does the same thing on a number of occasions. And we're going to see that this morning in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Um, There are other examples in the book of 1 Corinthians where you see this. Um, If you fast forward through this book of the Bible, you'll notice that chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians um, have subtitles having to do with spiritual gifts. You probably see that in the bold subtitles of your Bibles. And then right in the middle of that is chapter 13, this love chapter that most of us have heard uh, declared at a wedding sometime or another. That, that's not just some sidestep, um, not having to do with the bigger picture of, of the, the thought, the train of thought, the argument that Paul is making. He's actually using uh, the center of that argument to make the big point um, having to do with everything that surrounds that. So you can kind of connect the dots that uh, in the midst of people talking about the spiritual gifts that they have that other people don't have and which gifts are better than others in the life of the church, all of a sudden he just comes power-packed in the middle of that with a chapter on love. That's what Paul's doing this morning. And so it's called a sandwich technique because you got basically the two slices of bread um, at the top and the bottom, and then in the middle of that is all the meat that's between those two slices of bread that's meant to drive home the big point of what's being communicated. And so if you think in, in these terms, what that means is that last week we looked at the top slice of bread according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the bottom slice of bread, and then we're going to look at the meat uh, that's driving the entire uh, chapter uh, of, of this particular book of the Bible in, in terms of what Paul's trying to get at. And so we're going to go out of order this morning. We're going to um, pick back up from where we left off last week. We're going to continue to look at some bread, and then we're going to get to the meat, if that makes sense. And so as you dive into verses 25 through 40, we pick up some more principles and some more case studies that have to do with marriage and singleness. If you begin reading in verse 25, Paul says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry... You have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Because everyone's circumstance is different, and we'll see that as we get into the the meat of this passage, verses 17 through 24. Because everyone's circumstance is different, Paul realized that he can't establish a universal rule, a universal command moving forward. But he can provide significant uh, godly counsel as a trustworthy recipient of God's mercy. And so what we're going to read this morning is not just Paul's opinion, but rather it's the wise counsel of a man filled with the Holy Spirit who's been called to be an apostle. Most of what Paul's talking about comes down to, to what's wise, not what's strictly law. And because it's not about law, the main aim of what Paul's saying this morning is not obedience, right? Those two go hand in hand. If you have a law, then you're meant to obey it. But Paul's not coming with law this morning. He's coming with wisdom. And so he's not after our obedience, but rather our good. He's after our joy. Let me start off with a question this morning for for everyone in this room, which is this. Who in terms of wisdom has God placed in your life for your good? Who in terms of wisdom has God placed in your life for your good? 
And, and my hope would be that your answer would be more than one person. This idea that discipleship in the church is this one per- person pours into me and then I pour into one person and we just kind of do this linear thing it is a bit reductionistic. The reality is um, it takes a, a, a village, so to speak, um, in terms of our sanctification, if you look at the church in Corinth, it wasn't just the Apostle Paul that was pouring into these people. They had Apollos, they had Peter, and thus you have uh, these divisions in the church going back to the first chapter where some of them were saying, I follow Paul, and others were saying, I follow Peter, and others, I follow Apollos, that uh, they were following a number of men who were speaking into their lives, who were bringing wisdom to bear in terms of their Christian growth. And so the question for us this morning would be, what does that look like for you? Um, for me, it runs several, uh, several dozen deep in terms of the number of people that are um, investing in my life and pointing me to Jesus. Everybody from uh, people in my community group to family members of mine who love Jesus to church planting mentors and coaches to friends who are pastors outside of the cross point community and so forth and so on. There are a number of people who are investing in my life and I'm seeking to invest in a number of other people's lives for the glory of God. What does that look like for you? Um, We believe that Jesus didn't spill his blood in order to redeem us into isolation, but rather into community. And so the question would be, are you pressing into community? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are wise, who, who know the scriptures, who love Jesus, and who are for your good and God's glory? The issue here. In verses 20, uh, 25 through 40 is one having to do with betrothed women and, and their fiancés. There's this present distress. Um, there are these worldly troubles in Corinth at the time. Most scholars believe this to be a famine, that there were uh, a number of famines that were taking place uh, across Greece at this time. And if you fast forward 1 Corinthians to chapter 11, people are coming hungry to the communion table. And it's not because they forgot to eat a bowl of cereal before they showed up at a church service. There's something problematic going on in this city. People are deeply hungry, and it's causing issues at the communion table so that there's no bread left. There's no wine left when people finally get up to receive communion. There's a real problem going on so that what I think Paul's driving at here is that circumstantially, it's much more difficult to put food on the table for a spouse and kids than it is to gather food for yourself as a single person. And thus Paul says, if you're married, stay that way. If you're single, stay that way. If you're betrothed, stay that way. Verse 29, he goes on to say, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. That in the midst of this present distress, Paul's trying to give them an eternal perspective. Is Paul saying in an absolute sense, if you're married, man, go live like you weren't. And so forth and so on. Like, if you're married, just, just pretend like you're not. Go take shots at the bar. Go do your thing. And, and, in fact, you'll actually be obeying the Scriptures if you do that. No, not remotely. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul affirms the importance of rejoicing always. In Ephesians 5, he affirms the balanced view of marriage responsibilities and sexuality. Going back to last week, in 2 Corinthians 7, 7, to the same group of people, the same church, he affirms the fact that they mourned for his afflictions and that that brought him comfort and joy, that mourning and rejoicing in marriage are good things. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, he affirms the value of contentment with what God's given you provisionally using this language of worldly goods. Paul's, Paul's not saying that rejoicing and mourning and marriage and Uh, trade in the world we live in are evil or problematic, that would refute everything else that he says across the span of of, uh, his authorship in the New Testament. Rather, what he's saying is these things are not ultimate. These things are not everything. They're they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. Christians live in in the world like everyone else. Some of us married, all of us rejoicing at at certain times, all of us mourning at, at certain times. All of us buying and dealing with the world. We don't live in a monastery just kind of off from the world. We, we do our dealings with the world that we, we live in. But Paul says none of these things defines 
the Christian ultimately. He or she is marked for eternity, defined by Jesus Christ himself. That he or she has been brought into this redemptive mission of pointing others to the glory of Christ. There's this missional bent. Going back to last week, we talked about the fact that marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. And they're not the gifts of black socks on Christmas morning. That God uh, considers both of these things to be beautiful because they display the gospel in different ways. That the Apostle Paul, as a single man, is able to have uh, undivided allegiance and devotion to Jesus. And yet marriage is... The, the most sure, visible uh, display uh, from a, a world, worldly vantage point of the covenant between Jesus and his bride, the church. How Jesus feels about the church is put on display through the way that husbands and wives interact with one another. The Apostle Paul is saying there's something missional here that I'm trying to drive at. That time is at a premium, so don't be conformed to this world. Don't make these things ultimate. Set your minds on eternity. Get an eternal perspective, especially when things become unraveled. If you go on to read, beginning in verse 32, the next few verses, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, Paul's not, Paul's not going into caveman mode here in chapter 7. He's not going, singleness, good. Marriage, bad. That, that's not what, what he's doing. He's saying, when you marry, you now have another person to provide for and to protect. You have another person who has a say-so in where your lives collectively are going now that the two have become one flesh. Okay, What I'm not going to do as a married man is just determine that next week, we're selling the house, and we're going to move and be global missionaries in Africa. If you know my wife, you know how that would go. It would not go well. She, she has a, a, a right to be a part of that conversation because of the covenant that we made to one another. She's a, a part of, of helping to uh, discern where God's taking our marriage, even down to the most uh, simple of things. I can't just get up in the morning, throw a Bible in a backpack, and go head out into the woods for a quiet time. Because if I do, one of the two of my kids might not get breakfast that morning. Like we actually have to calendar, coordinate to talk about where the day is going and how to engage that day, even as we're thinking through how we're going to engage in, in time with the Lord specifically and personally. That there's this other person. If you're married, you have a responsibility to provide for and to protect them. And when you bring kids to bear uh, as a part of your story, it just gets that much more complex. Does that make marriage bad? Of course not. Again, it's the most visible uh, display for the world to see of the way Jesus feels about his bride, the church. Paul believes that both marriage and singleness are advantageous for the sake of the gospel. It's a wisdom issue. Again, it's not law. Paul's saying what's wise for you to do in light of the present circumstances that you find yourselves in. And that would be even the same for us today. Based on your present circumstances and how God might use you, where might he be leading you? In all of this, Paul says, I'm not out to put a noose around your necks. He says, I say this for your own benefit, verse 35, not to lay any restraint upon you. That word restraint is hunting language. Paul's saying that I'm not looking to throw a lasso over you. I'm not looking to put a noose around your necks when I say these things. I really want you to just press into to the things of God and to ask God, where are you taking me? Where are you leading me in my life? Or where are you leading us if you're married in our lives collectively together? He goes on in verse 36 to say, If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep, his, uh, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. That here Paul says in the midst of this present distress, if you're engaged and you can postpone it or not get married, that might be a good idea. 
And if you're engaged and you don't have the gift of celibacy, which is revealed in your passion for the person that you're engaged to, then get married. That, that Paul says it's a matter of wisdom. Paul brings up the heart twice here. He's saying your heart has to be in this decision either way with God's glory in mind. That it's not, it's not just a heart piece. It's not just uh, we, we get into this mentality of this person will, will complete me and my heart is fully given to them. And so we could take a verse like this and go, okay, so the heart's engaged, so it must be where God's leading. And, and yet this all comes under the banner of leveraging your marriage for God's glory, this missional bent with God's glory in mind. Is it ultimately about his glory and, and everything else coming under the banner of that? Paul says marriage isn't a sin and neither is singleness, that both are a gift. It just so happens that Paul personally sees his gift as being more advantageous in terms of devotion to the Lord and an ability to point people to the glory of God through the gospel, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you get in Paul's head for a second and you think about all that he accomplished over the course of three missionary journeys and the planting of churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Corinth, Ephesus, a number of churches, thousands of people saved as a result of Paul's ministry. When he's looking at this thing, he's probably going, if I were married, there's no way I would have accomplished that. And so for the Apostle Paul, he sees a great advantage to remaining single. What has God put on your heart in terms of the ministry that he has for you? That might help to, um, to bring to bear what he's calling you to, whether it be marriage or singleness. If the calling is to go plant churches all across Asia Minor, you might be called to a life of singleness. I don't know. You may be able to do that in a married context, but there are certain things that are far more difficult to, to pull off for the glory of God depending on your context. He goes on to close out um, with, with these case studies in verse 39. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That what Paul's saying here is, to those considering marriage, it's a lifelong commitment. That going back to last week, death is a prerequisite for remarrying. And so he wants the betrothed in Corinth to prayerfully consider where God is leading them. Because this is a big deal. Marriage is a parable of permanence for the world to look in on. It's not meant to be taken lightly. It's meant to display Jesus' permanent relationship with his bride, the church. He's not divorcing us. He loves you. If you struggle to believe that, if you believe that the grace of God has bounds, the very beauty of marriage puts on display that it does not, that Jesus is not going anywhere. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never divorce you. He has made a covenant with his blood, and he's going nowhere. Paul says, if your spouse passes away, then at that point, maybe, he says, I think you'd be better off not remarrying um, in the midst of this present distress, whatever it is in Corinth, and, and an opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. But again, it's a matter of wisdom, not law. He says the important thing is that if you do, it should be in the Lord. That this isn't the most direct passage of Scripture that would drive toward the idea that Christians should marry Christians. There are other passages that drive at that more intentionally and emphatically, but Paul is saying that here. He's saying that um, if you're not yet married, that that should be a prerequisite to marriage for you, that you should take that into account, that uh, when, when you look at someone's Facebook page, uh, religious views should, should be at the top of the list, not favorite movies, um, not uh, places they visited that show up on their Google map, not, not all of these things that, that are meant to come under the banner of Christian. That Paul says that's a big deal, that there's an equal yoking. If you're, if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, um, again, go back to last week, and Paul deals with that really well in the first part of chapter 7. But if you're not yet married, he says that's something to take into consideration. That's, that's important. And he ends this section by making clear that in the midst of this hyper-spiritual church in Corinth, all these people are going, you know, we're going to go set up a monastery. We're going to leave our, our husbands. We're going to leave our wives. And we're just going to go live in seclusion. And God's going to love us more because we're living a life of holiness at the expense of our marriages. They, they think they're super spiritual, but they're completely missing it. And Paul says, to the super spiritual, hyper spiritual church in Corinth, the Spirit of God indwells me. And so listen to what I have to say as an apostle of Jesus Christ. All right, that's your second slice of bread. 
Go back to last week and connect the dots to what we talked about last week with everything we just went through. Now you have the two pieces of bread. We're making a sandwich here. Now we're going to go into the fridge and dig out the good stuff, the meat, the stuff that goes in the middle. That's where the Apostle Paul goes in verses 17 through 24 so that the, the goal as we work through the remainder of this particular chapter of the Bible is that you see that everything we talked about last week and everything we've talked about this morning up to this point is meant to be driven by the very idea that we're about to address coming out of verses 17 through 24. This is the big idea for chapter 7. Verse 17 says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. All right, this is, uh, this is crucial right here. In verse 17, Paul uses two words, and they're distinguishable from one another. On the one hand, he says that we're called. He uses this Greek word kaleo. It means to summon. It's a theological word. It, it, it has to do with your conversion. If you're a Christian, you were called. Through the declaration of the gospel, God summoned your soul from the dead and breathed life into your dead, lifeless soul. That's this word in the Bible called kaleo. We see it uh, if you hit rewind in 1 Corinthians, back to chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, you get that word here. It says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called... Kaleo, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And Paul uses this word all, all over the New Testament in his writings, this word called. But he uses a second word in verse 17. He uses this word assigned. It's the Greek word marizo, um, which is not theological in nature. It's circumstantial in nature. So he's saying that God has gifted you. He's assigned you. He's apportioned you your life circumstantially as it's laid out in his sovereignty. So he's called you, he's converted you, brought you into the family of God, but he's also circumstantially assigned you the life that you're now living out. This is crucial here because uh, you're going to see Paul give two examples, two highly controversial examples of circumcision and slavery. And one of those, circumcision, is going to drive at contentment in the calling that God has placed on your life in bringing you into the family of God. And the other one, slavery, is going to have to do with circumstantial contentment, where God has you in life. So hang on to those things. He uses both. If you fast forward down to verse 22, you see this. It says this in verse 22, For he who was called in the Lord, okay, theological, conversion, as a bondservant, circumstantial, assignment. He goes on in verse 22 to say this, Likewise, he who was free, circumstantial, assignment, when called, theological conversion. You tracking with me? Both of those are happening simultaneously in, in Paul's thinking. In context, if you go back to the end of last week's passage, uh, verses 12 through 16, some have been converted and their spouses have not been converted. And Paul's saying you've been called by God, converted, kaleo, in your present circumstance, marriage. And so he says remain where God has you. Don't divorce your spouse just because he or she isn't a Christian circumstantially. And if you look at the entire context of last week, Christians are seeking to change their situation in the name of holiness. Married people going into celibacy mode. I'm going to go set up a monastery and live as a monk or a nun. Married Christians divorcing their Christian spouses. Married Christians divorcing their non-Christian spouses. They're pursuing these changes in the name of, um, I can honor the Lord better if my circumstance is different. And Paul says, it's, one, it's not honoring to shatter the image of Christ in his church, which is what marriage is. And then secondly, in the bigger picture, it's not honoring to God to belittle the assignment, the circumstances that he's placed you in. It, it questions his goodness. It questions his sovereignty. It questions his character. We do this all the time, right? God, I think you messed up. I think you, I think you got chapters one through four of my life right on. Chapter five, I think you blew it. And now I'm in chapter six or seven trying to pick up the pieces because you, the author, just seem to screw it all up. We question God's goodness. We question God's sovereignty. And Paul's saying, don't do that. 
God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in reaching down and saving you, and he knows what he's doing in terms of the circumstances of your very life that he's apportioned to you for the sake of his glory and your joy. The big idea in chapter 7, which is evidenced here right in the center of the chapter, is this broad idea of Christian contentment. It goes beyond marriage and singleness. It drives at the heart of are we content in the bigger picture of our lives where we are You see it three times in in this middle section of of the chapter. In verse 17, Paul says, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Verse 20, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There's this idea of contentment in Christ. And Paul unpacks this in a really strange way. As I said before, he uses two highly controversial examples to do so, namely circumcision and slavery. Look at verse 18 and read through the rest of of this section. It says this, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was, who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. All right. What Paul's doing here. One, he, he's not giving a treatise on circumcision and slavery. Similar to last week, he, he wasn't driving at this systematic theology of marriage and singleness and divorce and sex. The same thing's true here. He's not trying to say everything that needs to be said about circumcision and slavery as the Bible lays it out. But rather, he's using a religious bar- barrier in Corinth, namely circumcision, and a social barrier in Corinth, namely slavery, to drive at a much bigger point having to do with contentment and sufficiency in Christ. Now check out how he does this. This is, this is really interesting. In verses 18 through 20, he drives at this idea of circumcision, and he says this. He says, circumcision doesn't count for anything. That's the most offensive thing you could possibly say to a Jew. Just so you know, if you encounter uh, someone who is full-on Jewish, and you walk up to them today and say circumcision means nothing. You will offend them. Especially in this day in which uh, there, there was great debate in the early church over whether um, Gentiles had to be circumcised or not. As the gospel went forth beyond the Jews, it was a hot topic of debate. Paul comes in and he says circumcision means nothing. It doesn't count for anything. Highly controversial especially in light of the fact that God established a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis in which circumcision was the sign of that covenant. God told Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. I'll give you the land of Canaan as a gift. And he goes on to say in Genesis 17, verses 13 through 14, listen to this strong language. It says, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Genesis 17, circumcision is God's command and is directly connected to a covenant with God. 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision doesn't count for anything. What in the world has gone on between Genesis 17 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7? If you, if you look at Acts chapter 15... The, the church is, is unfolding, the New Testament church. Um, Acts chapter 10, Peter's received this vision from the Lord uh, in which uh, he's told essentially that the Gentiles are going to be reached with the gospel. It's not just going to be uh, Israel. And, and so the gospel goes forth beyond Jerusalem uh, into these very Gentile regions, and Gentiles are being saved left and right. This is happening in the city of Corinth even. And in the midst of Gentiles being saved, Jews are saying, well, okay, but based on Genesis 17, you also have to be 
circumcised. This is a prerequisite for salvation. It's not, it's not just Christ, but it's Christ plus circumcision equals salvation. And the church responds at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and says, not remotely, it's actually, as one pastor's put it so eloquently, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the response of the church to, to this issue that the Jews are bringing to the table as they're seeking to add to the work of Jesus. The church says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's Christ alone. We, we do this modern day, do we not? We, we may not articulate it this way, but at a heart level, many of us believe that Jesus plus being a Republican equals salvation, or Jesus plus no R-rated movies equals salvation, or Jesus plus abstinence from alcohol equals salvation. And, and we, we just add to the work of Jesus in terms of uh, what it takes to be part of the redeemed. Jesus didn't come through 90% in saving you and say, you got to come the other 10 that's not how the gospel works. Jesus did everything. He lived a life that you and I couldn't live, a perfect, righteous, sinless life. He died the death that you and I deserve to die as our substitute sin bearer, making atonement for sin with his blood. He rose conquering sin and death on our behalf so that when we seek to add to his work, all we do is belittle it. I've given this example before, and I'll probably give it an, another hundred times um, before I die, unless God takes me very, uh, very soon in the future, um, because I can't think of a better example. It would be as though someone gave you a signed Mickey Mantle baseball, and you looked at that baseball and said, you know, like there's certain letters that uh, the, the ink doesn't seem to connect perfectly, and that's just driving me nuts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go grab a Sharpie out of the drawer, and I'm just going to trace over the signature so that you can't really tell what's been done, we all know that the minute you put that Sharpie to that baseball, you've just devalued the entire baseball, have you not? You've just diminished the value of that collectible. The same thing is true about the gospel, that when we seek to add our own efforts, our own merits, whatever that is, that, that you would fill in the blank with Jesus plus this equals I'm now saved, is a belittling of the person and work of Jesus. It diminishes all that Christ has done on our behalf. It diminishes the gospel. Paul says in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. That there's a both and here. That if you think about it, it's not just that the Jews were persecuting the Gentiles, which is what brought about that whole Acts chapter 15 council to have to deal with that issue. But the Gentiles are also persecuting the Jews, which is why if you go back to the planting of the church in Corinth, this couple named Priscilla and Aquila that we talked about a couple weeks ago are on the scene because they've been kicked out of their hometown. They got kicked out of Rome for being Jewish. So, so there's a both and. There's this antagonism going back and forth in this mentality of, as a Jew, maybe I need to be a little bit more Gentile-like. Or as a Gentile, maybe I, I, mean, I need to be a little bit more uh, Jew-like in terms of uh, the way that I, I, I bring myself about for the community to see. And Paul says in verse 19, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. What matters is not your ethnic, religious background or upbringing, but your devotion to Jesus. It's not about external rituals, but rather internal devotion and commitment to the Lord. It's not about looking like you have it all together. It's about looking at Christ for your position and status in life. This gets back to the whole calling piece, right? You've got Paul saying we're called and we're assigned. We're called into the family of God and we're assigned the circumstances of our very lives to live out for his glory. The circumcision piece would be do you believe you're called and do you believe that Christ's work is sufficient for your calling? Or are you seeking to add to the work of Jesus? Are you discontent with the person and work of Jesus in all of its fullness so that you feel like you now need to add to his work in order to be good before God? Whether it be external rituals, the way you display yourself for the church and the community to see you, rather than uh, putting on display your weakness so that Christ might be made much of. Whatever that looks like for us, the question is, are we content that Jesus is enough in terms of our calling into this family of God? 
And then he gets into not just the calling piece, but the assignment piece, the circumstances that you find yourself in when he addresses this issue of slavery in verses 21 through 24. He says this in verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, uh, can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Again, Paul says something highly controversial here. Are you a slave? Don't worry about it. It, One third of the people in Corinth were slaves. People who had no freedom, no rights, no ownership, no legal standing. And in the midst of this crowd, Paul says, are you a slave? Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. Now, slavery is not what it, what it was um, in terms of our history as a country. One of the worst things that we can do is read uh, our culture into the Bible to interpret the Bible. Rather, we're meant to bring the Bible to bear on our culture to interpret the culture. That makes sense? Those two are drastically different uh, approaches in terms of understanding uh, and interpreting the Scriptures. There were some benefits to slavery in Paul's day, protection and care as opposed to um, impoverished freedom. And so some people would actually uh, desire to go uh, into this form of slavery. But there was absolutely a cultural stigma attached to being a slave. So that if you go back to the Old Testament, you have the example of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was a slave of a wealthy man named Potiphar. If you remember the story, he was wrongly accused of seducing Potiphar's wife. Um, He was given no due process under the law and was thrown into prison ultimately because he was just a slave. What's Paul doing here in these last few verses that we're looking at this morning? What is Paul up to? I think the answer is that he's showing that the gospel levels the playing field unquestionably. The gospel levels the playing field. Verse 22 says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. That he's saying the person of high estate, the free man, is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He is not his own. Christ is his master. Paul uses this language about himself. Romans 1.1, he refers to himself as Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. That Paul says those of high estate are are humbled. They're brought low by the gospel. Because they haven't saved themselves. Jesus has. He's their master. And the person of low estate, the slave, is reminded of his or her dignity. That he was bought with a price. He is free in Christ. Free from bondage to self and bondage to sin. You see the both and there? The gospel brings confidence and humility to bear. Confidence because Jesus has done everything to secure our redemption. And humility because Jesus, not you or I, has done everything to secure our redemption. Notice that the slave in, in these verses is not free, but rather a freed man of the Lord. All right, that's a big deal. That, that may sound like it, just a subtle nuance, but it's a huge deal. Let me share this quote with you from David Garland and his commentary on this passage. And I want, I want you to think about your own Christianity as you read this quote. And ask yourself, do I view myself this way in light of Christ? He says this, Freed slaves were not free to do as they pleased. The freedman owed the former master lifelong eagerness to serve respectfully. A certain number of days work per week, month, or year. Gifts and moral duty. In return, the master, now the slave's patron, looks after the welfare of the freedman. He goes on to say this. As Christ's freedman, the former slave takes on the name of the master, is directed by him, and owes him allegiance. Do do you view Christianity that way? That you've been redeemed from the bondage of sin and self, and yet you're not your own. Christ is king. Christ is the one that we submit our lives to. And here's the beauty of that, that no matter your circumstance, no matter your allotment, no matter your assignment in life, you don't have to please a whole lot of people. You have one person ultimately to please, one master. 
namely Jesus. Everything else falls under the banner of King Jesus. And he's unlike any other master. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's good. He's merciful. He affords us status as children of God and co-heirs with him through the spilling of his blood. That's the beauty of the gospel. Some people will read verses like this and they'll completely bypass all of that. Just the beauty and wonder of Christ and go, is Paul supporting slavery? And and make that the big E on the I chart. The answer is unquestionably no. Paul says if you have a chance for freedom, take it. But here's what Paul's doing. He's not interested in changing institutions He's not after social justice as the end-all, be-all. Is that good to abolish institutions that are evil and wicked? Yes and amen. But Paul realizes that that goal is far too small. That if you abolish the institution, it doesn't deal with the wicked hearts of men. Point in case, welcome to the South where racism lives on even though slavery has been abolished. I encounter it constantly, and I'm sure that you do too, and maybe even find it rising up in your own heart. There's this deep need for sanctification to continue to take place, that the abolishment of the institution doesn't address the wickedness of the human heart. Paul's goal is bigger than that. It's to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, which does change the wicked hearts of men. That's what Paul is after. He's not leaning on a system to save the day. He's leaning on Christ as the hero to come and save the day. Jesus levels the playing field. Your ultimate status, my ultimate status, is not married or single. It's not in the job that we have. It's not in the neighborhood that we live in. It's not in the car that we drive. It's not in the religious background that we bring to the table in terms of our story. It's in Christ. That's where our status is to be found. That if you want to understand the meat in this sandwich called 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it it could be wrapped up in a quote from N.T. Wright in his commentary, which is this. In the Messiah, you already have all the status you will ever need. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Marriage and singleness just falls under that massive banner of contentment in Jesus. In the Messiah, you already have all the status you will ever need. The big idea is to be content in Christ, to stop looking at other things to give you status, to stop looking for change in order to validate who you are. We, we call it keeping up with the Joneses, and we've, we've laid out a really good strategy for how it's supposed to work, right? Go to school, then get a job, then buy your first car that your parents didn't have to co-sign with you, and then get married, and then buy a house as a married couple, and then get a dog to help you learn how to take care of kids one day, and then have your 2.5 kids, and then get a bigger car so you can carry them in their car seats all around town, and then get a bigger house so that you can care for your kids well, and then just start looking toward the 401k, because that's the only thing that's left at that point, besides grandkids maybe. We, we've, we've laid it out really, really well. So that all we have to do is think about what we don't have constantly. It's the very problem that brought sin into the world in the first place. Hey, Adam and Eve, how about 5,000 or more trees that you can pick from? Yeah, God, but there's that one tree. I mean, there's that one tree. It looks like the Land Rover I've always wanted to own but have never been able to afford. I'm kind of dreaming about that one tree now. And all of a sudden... All of human history gets train wrecked because what we have is not enough. Failure to see your identity in Christ will leave you fidgety. It will leave you restless, constantly chasing after the next thing. We think to ourselves, if I just had blank, then I could be content and serve God and be happy. And the reality of what Paul's driving at in the big picture of this chapter of the Bible is God has you right where he wants you. And he wants to use you where he has you until he changes your circumstances for his glory and his purposes. It goes back to the Why Church series that you and I, we're the moon. Jesus is the sun. We've been positioned perfectly to reflect the sun's light. And all of us have been positioned differently in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes, in our friend groups, so that we might point more and more people to Jesus. We've been put on a mission with great purpose. If you look at Joseph going back to that example in the book of Genesis, he he ran Potiphar's house and God used him there. And then he was thrown into prison and God used him there. 
And then he became second in command in all of Egypt, and God used him there. That Joseph wasn't waiting for his circumstances to change before he would be leveraged for God's glory. No matter where God had him, he said, spend me for your glory right now, right here, as you have me in my present circumstances. That for you and I, it's about contentment in Christ. And if circumstances change, then honor him. And if they don't, honor him. That's what Paul's driving at this morning. As we close, let me just give you a couple of practical application points so that we don't completely bypass and people go off and and do weird things as sermon application this week. Here you go, just a few things. One, sometimes change is honorable. That in this passage, we see slaves gaining their freedom when opportunity arises, and Paul doesn't slap them on the wrist for that. That when Matthew, a tax collector, becomes a missionary and a pastor, that's a beautiful thing. That when prostitutes and porn stars and people who exploit others for a living quit their jobs and find new ones, that's a good thing. Secondly, change based on discontentment is dishonorable. That if you're not seeking contentment in Christ, then discontentment is not a good reason for change of circumstance. That if restlessness is driving you, created by failure to be content in Jesus, you probably should hit pause and pursue contentment in Christ before you go making changes circumstantially in your life. And then lastly, staying where God has you can be quite honorable. That sometimes the worst thing a Christian can do is to quit their job as an engineer or a teacher or a server to go become a missionary or a youth pastor or a social justice advocate. That if the Holy Spirit leads you in that direction, that's great. But he just might have you right where he wants you because he wants to reach a coworker or a client or someone uh, in your present circumstance for the glory of God. God might actually know what he's doing. We create these, these JV and varsity levels of like vocation, which is just absurd. God's at work in all of that for his glory. So I leave you with this question this morning. Are you content in Christ? Or are you always looking to the next thing? Do you functionally believe that the status that you have in Christ is more important than your social or cultural status? And then would your answer be supported by what you chase after? The way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, that which you talk about most with other people. Are you content in Christ? I'll leave you with this verse this morning as we close. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God knows what he's doing in your life. He loves you deeply. He is for your joy and he is for his glory. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.